Good morning, Grace. Our text for today is from 1 Samuel 2 and 3. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles as we read from Scripture this morning. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man's When any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, "'Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw.'" And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Amen. How are we doing? Well, it is good to see you guys here. And I mean guys. Good to see you here. I'll tell you what, gentlemen, well done being here on Father's Day. Well done. Uh, actually, Mother's Day is one of the biggest uh, weekends of, of the year because moms will rally the family together and bring them to church. But you guys are rivaling, the, you're rivaling them uh, right now. We're super glad that you're here. So thank you for being here. Let's pray for all the pagan dads. We're not. Dear Jesus. No. No, just joking. We're, 
We're really glad that you guys are here. Uh, so just a, uh, just a uh, preface to what I'm going to be talking about right now. Uh, ladies, because this is Father's Day and because the text, as you will see, is very dialed into uh, fathering, uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, that today. I'm going to be talking about dads today. So when I say things like, um, men, you're called to be the spiritual leaders of your family, women don't hear that as... as um, you know, like you're not called to bleed either, okay? So don't write me uh, oppositional emails this week about men and women, okay? Because that's just not cool. Um, so don't do that. Actually, I'm super, I just want to say, really, in all seriousness, I'm super grateful that uh, you guys are the kind of church that you are because I never get bad emails. Like, I, I don't get ugly, nasty emails. I've gotten like three in like 16 years, which I'm, so let me just say thank you for not being a jerks. I appreciate that because it makes it so much easier to lead the church when you're like that. I'm just so helpful and, and ready to learn. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to, uh, we're looking at 1 Samuel and we're going to start in verse 12. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Eli's sons. Let me kind of catch you up, if you will, to uh, where we've been. Uh, last week, we looked at an amazing woman. Her name was Hannah. And we looked at a prayer from Hannah. And Hannah's prayer was essentially a prayer to God, reaching out because God had closed her womb. She was not able to bear children. And of course, in that generation, in that day, it was a public sign of disgrace that a woman could not bear a child, right? It was a sign of God's displeasure with her. However, however, with that said, as Hannah poured out her heart and gave everything she had to God in, his, in her disappointment, God met her there. And in the meeting there, he didn't promise that he was going to give or deliver a child. It was just the simple fact that Hannah met with the Lord and that she knew in her heart, no matter what other people thought about outside of, outside of her circumstances, she knew that God was with her. The Bible actually says that God closed Hannah's womb. And one of the things that we see in the Bible is that every time, every time God closes the womb of a woman, right? He ends up opening that womb for a very divine purpose, meaning that the child that's going to be born is going to be born for a great destiny. And that's the child Samuel that we're going to be looking at today as well. Samuel uh, has a huge destiny. God's going to use him to, uh, he is the, Samuel is the last of the judges of the Old Testament, and he is the first of the prophets uh, uh, of, of of this part of the, of, of, of the text. And so Samuel's job is to anoint a king. Why does someone get to be king? Well, they're born into being king, but why does that matter? In the Old Testament, before they had any kings, God is going to raise up Samuel, the last judge and priest, to lay his hands on these kings and anoint them with oil, which was a symbol of God's pleasure and power residing in that king, Right? And so he's going to do that not only with Saul, he's going to do it with King David, the mightiest and most recorded um, kings in history. So he's got this huge picture ahead of him, this huge future ahead of him, but she cries out, she asks for help. We made a distinction last week, and the distinction was that in her prayer, she singled out two different types of people. The first person was the prideful person who was generating their own life from their own flesh. They were doing things on their own terms. And as we finish looking at the, the last verse of the book of Judges, this is what's happening all around the world for them. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, meaning everyone looked not to an external truth, not looked to external power, but looked to themselves and said, what do I think? And they elevated what they thought as most important. Very much 
like what we do today. So 3,100 years ago, people were not all that different than they are actually today. The second thing that she uh, gave to us was not just the prideful person who operates out of their flesh, but we also started talking about the humble person who operates out of the spirit. Somebody who is walking not with pride, but with humility and is empowered in their life by a kind of spiritual electricity that allows them to be connected to God, right? And that's because God is with them because of their humility, right? And so now we're going to look at the implications of these two different types of people. Eli's sons being the proud, flesh-bearing people. And then we're going to look at Samuel being the humble, spirit-empowered leader. So let's do this. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. How terrible, right? Can we just stop right there? Like you are known, your names are actually known. Their names are Hophni and Phineas, right? Seem like really nice English people, right? You know, just like, like a librarian, you know, Hophni and Phineas. But no, no, no. These guys are wicked, terrible priests, right? And for 3,100 years, and then plus, whatever long time, however long, time, long Jesus waits to return, these guys are known as worthless men, right? Worthless men. Well, let's take a look at why they're worthless. They did not know the Lord, all right? Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Let's pause right here. The first thing I want you to see is they're not worthless because they didn't know the Lord. Listen, if you're, if you're in the room right now and you're not clear on your relationship with the Lord and you're just trying to experiment and try to figure things out right now, this is the place for you to be because you can ask questions, you can, you can, you can hear engaging talks, you can jump into classes, you can be in relationships with other Christians. It's a great place for you to be to take your next step toward Christ, wherever you're starting from. However, with that said, When they talk about being worthless, they're not talking about worthlessness because they didn't know the Lord. It was out of not knowing the Lord that they became worthless, right? And so here you've got these guys, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, what is their job? Their job is that they are the son of Eli the priest. Now, Eli the priest is a Levite, right? He's from the tribe of Aaron. And from the, so Aaron is Moses' brother. God said, Aaron, from your family, uh, the Levites, I'm going to create a priesthood. You couldn't just become a pastor. You couldn't become a priest, right? You were born into it, right? And so as you're born into this line right here, as you're born into this line, you're either born into it with a relationship with God, not, not, I mean, because we're not born with a relationship with God, but you enter into a relationship with God or not. You're either religious and a faker or you have a relationship and intimacy and you're true. Hophni and Phinehas, because they did not know the Lord, chose the path of being fakers and pretenders. They had all the authority of a priest, but they did not know God. I want you to just imagine that for a moment, um, because what's taking place here today is stuff that you've you've seen probably your whole life, and you'll probably see for your whole life. And that is that leadership inside the church sometimes is, is messy. And not only is it messy, but there are some pretenders as well. There are some people who are dialed in to a relationship with God. There are some, even in religious leadership, that are not. They're just pretenders. They're good fakers. But invariably, I have this phrase that I've used forever, and it's just helped me so much in my life. And it's this. Time and truth go hand in hand. Invariably, as time unfolds, truth will unfold at the same time. So if you're pretending right now, we would encourage you to stop pretending and stop trying to be religious and instead... Start pursuing a relationship with God because here's the thing. You can only pretend for so long and it's tiring and you feel it. You feel the fakeness on the inside and the outside all the time. 
And what we want for you is so much more than that. What we want for you is a life that is a spring out of which every part of who you are exists. We are, the Bible says we are hidden inside Christ. That there's a generative quality to that racial relationship. He's always changing us and growing us. His grace empowering us. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling. All right, Pay attention to these details and I'll explain them. With a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle, the cauldron or the pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh. Now, remember Shiloh? We talked about it last week. Shiloh is the tent of meeting. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant is in a little building. And the Ark of the Covenant is where God in the Old Testament placed his presence. He placed his presence. Like God is not, I mean, so the Bible in the New Testament says where two or more gather together, there is God. God is here with us right now. The Bible promises us that. But listen. There was a different quality of the Old Testament presence, the Shekinah glory of God that's different here than, than, than anywhere else in the Bible. God concentrated himself in one single spot, and that's where these people were, okay? This is what they did to Shiloh at all the, and to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it to me now. And if not, I'll take it by force. So the sin of the young men was great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Man, let's talk about this. So you, you have part of, part of the first religious scandals in the Bible. You have these sons who are men who are pretending to be spiritual, but at the same time, because they're not and they didn't know God, their inside eventually shows up on the outside. They end up doing wicked things. So it says, was the custom? 400 years ago, before they wrote this, before this scene is taking place, God gives the uh, privilege to the priests to take part of the sacrifice. So here's how it comes: come. You would go and you would sacrifice, let's say, um, a bull. You would sacrifice that bull. Now, God himself said to the priests, because they make their income as being priests, because they're from this one family, they can't do anything else, this is their job, so you're going to get part of the breast of the animal, and you're going to get the, the, um, um, the shoulders of the animal, right? And that's going to be yours. And then the one who brought the sacrifice, he would get some as well, and then some of it would be burned on the altar, okay? And so here they changed the rules. Why? Because they were wicked and they wanted more than what was theirs. And so what they did was they took this three-pronged fork and they said, as the meat is boiling before it's about to be burned and sacrificed, whatever you can put in there and pull out, you get to keep. Now you can imagine uh, the, the equivalent of this would be like me standing at the front door and at church is not optional, by the way. You have to come. We're trying to figure out how to biblically make that happen again. But, uh, but, nevertheless, but, nevertheless, but nevertheless, that would be like me standing at the front door and everyone who comes in just be like, I need your ATM card. I need your ATM card. I need, you know, and I just take what I want. Whatever my three-pronged thing can take out of it, right? That would be terrible. You'd be like, I hate church. Why? Because I'm poor all the time, right? And they hated it too. And this is, we're going to get to this in a second. So, but what would happen is sometimes before the meat was boiled in order to be sacrificed, 
The guys would come in and say, I don't want you to boil that. I want you to give me the entire meat. And if you don't, I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to have you beaten. We're, you know, problems are going to ensue, right? So they'd take that meat out of the pot and, and they would give it to them whole. Why would they do that? Because these priests who were terrible people would take this meat to the market and sell it. And they would sell the sacrifices of God. I mean, what is happening right now? And then other parts, some, sometimes people would push back and go, no, no, you can have anything you want, priest. You can have anything you want, but just let the fat burn off of the, uh, of the meat. Just can you do that? Because the fat part was considered to be the, the first and the most precious. And so that part needed to be burned up and given to God himself. And people were like, they weren't selfish. They were wanting to just give as much as they possibly could. They weren't even begrudging the priest taking something. But the priest in his foolishness and in his wickedness, he said, no, 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 I want to take that and I'm going to keep it for myself and I'm going to sell it. It was terrible. And I don't know about you, but I mean, probably you just like me just hate it when you see injustice in organizations. Why you just... Listen, listen, and this is coming from, so I need you to understand this. I love Jesus and I love his church. I think his church is the plan A, B, and C for the world. There is no other plan for Christians, period. You can be a Christian and go to heaven uh, without attending church, but you cannot be a good Christian and do that. There's never in history, never in history, been a group of Christians who were not part of the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people on a regular basis without without being wicked and, and far from God. So you're talking to a guy who loves the church, but I hate wickedness in leadership. And you do too, because this is what causes us so much consternation when we look around in government. And I'm not making a political statement about any, any president right now, present or past. I'm just talking about when we look at governments and we look at things uh, like, like churches sometimes and we look at institutions, we look at it and we go, we don't like the wickedness. We don't like the self-centeredness. We don't like the, 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 the selfishness of it all. And it tends that when people are in leadership, they tend towards that way. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. In this case, Eli was a godly man, but his children ran amok. And no one was there to say, stop, cut it out, take a step back. And you know why that is? It's because this is a man thing, all right, guys? So you thought you were coming to get encouragement today? No. Okay, so, 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 so and here's, here's why, here's why, guys. I know that this is encouraging to men because I believe that when you challenge a guy, he steps up to the challenge. And men are mostly under-challenged in our world today. But here's the problem, and Adam started it all. Adam's in the garden. God said, watch over the garden. I want you to watch over everything inside the garden, and that includes Eve. And Eve takes that fruit from that lying serpent, and she eats it. It's not about eating the fruit. It's about rebelling against God's plan for her life. She does it, but while she's doing that, what is Adam doing? Adam's doing standing back here watching her as she takes her step towards spiritual suicide. And Adam does nothing, nothing, he sits back and watches his precious wife die. She, sin entered her at that moment, and death entered her at that moment, and he followed, he followed right behind her. And ever since that time, men have struggled to step forward, to step forward and say, I'm going to lead my family spiritually. Because when things get hard, we take a step back, and we say things like, I'm just going to wait and see how it all works out. No. No, no, no. In fact, the judgment that God's going to bring on this man, Eli, because his sons are going to die is because he did not do anything. 
He gave him a lecture. And it wasn't enough. It continues on. Verse 17, the, the same things that you and I feel about spiritual leadership and leadership in the government and organizations, all of that in verse 17, apparently the writer of 1 Samuel thinks this too. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Let me just stop right there. It says, for men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Here, here's what you have. You have these people traveling from all over the world to come and see the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence resides, the glory and majesty of God. And they come with their hands full, not empty. They come with their hands full, ready to just pour it out. and give. It. Let me just give everything I have to him. And these priests are picking stuff off left and right. It's, it's amazing. I mean, the text literally says, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. It doesn't mean Hophni and Phinehas, it means everyone else. Because as these guys stole from them, they no longer wanted to give to the Lord. The influence of a father on his sons is not just about his sons, it's about the world that they will create after him. Your legacy is about pouring your life in and stepping forward and interceding when things are happening. You're stepping forward in power saying, I don't know how to do this right. I'm not perfect and I'm telling you right now, I don't. But I can't imagine I can't imagine my kids not knowing Jesus. I would rather them grow up and be garbage men and know and love Jesus all the days of their life and for us to be a forever family. And I thoroughly believe the only way for that to happen is men, you have to step forward and not just teach. See, this is, what he, this is, this is the mistake that Eli made first time around. Eli steps forward and he, and, he, and he rebukes them. Let's look at it in verse 22. But he doesn't rebuke them far enough. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things, sons? For I hear of your evil dealings from these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But, who, but if someone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? But his sons would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God was going to put the sons of Eli. Eli loves God, but he's going to put his sons to death because their hearts were so hardened. Leave, le, Eli confronts his sons, but he teaches them to be good moralists. He says, stop, stop doing the things that are wrong. And dads, our job is one one hundredth telling them stop doing stuff that's wrong. And the rest of it is teaching them to do the things that are right. And I don't mean the moral things that are right and wrong. What I mean is teaching them the gospel because these guys had no relationship with God. They're trying outwardly to do all the right things, but they can't because they're far from God and they have no connection to him. So what flows out is just their wickedness and selfishness. 
but their father could have taught them along the way. Could have said to them, my sons, the way that you act right now is a reflection of your relationship with God. It has to do with your soul, not with your behavior. And it breaks my heart for Eli to think that here's a guy who, sorry, who loved, who loved God as much as he did, and he had to watch his sons fall apart. He asks his question, and I think it's just really, really powerful. Verse 25, if someone sins up against a man, God will mediate for him. God will mediate for him. Someone, you and I, sin against one another. God can intercede and he can help, help us get back together with one another, right? Um, years ago, my, the Holy Spirit convicted me of a relationship with my father that I didn't have. We were not communicating for years. And he said, you cannot be my minister and have a hard heart towards someone. And God restored that relationship and did some amazing things. But this is the problem here. He says, but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Sons, you're not, just, you're, not just, you're not just doing bad things for other people, causing other people to contempt, have contempt for the Lord's offering. You're also offending the Lord. I mean, it says here that, that they are sleeping with the women who come to sacrifice. Just, just imagine with me, if you will. I mean, we're not talking about church here, right? We're talking, we're talking about, I mean, this is the early sex scandals inside the church, right? And so what you have here is you have, you have Eli's sons who are actually there at the tent of meeting where the Ark of the Covenant is, inside of which is God's presence. And inside God's presence right there, you've got the, you've, you, I mean, we're, we're talking geographically just a matter of a few hundred feet away. And at the door, you've got, you've got Eli's sons who are over there. How you doing? Right? They're just put, they're trying to pull, I mean, these women came to worship God. And the, the priest's sons, they pull them in, they sleep with them, they use them. It's terrible, it's awful. It's so bold. So wickedly bold. And we look at passages like this and we think to ourselves, well, there's part of this that I don't like, Mike. I don't like this whole thing that, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And I just, wanna, I just want you to think with me for a second. You've got these two guys. Nobody else can be a priest. I mean, they're of the family that can be a priest, and they're the only ones. And so you've got, you've got, this, you've got these two very, very wicked guys. Their hearts are hardened. They're not going to turn around. They're doing wicked things in the presence of God, flaunting the very presence of God. They have no relationship with him. They just think this is an empty box. They didn't press in. They just kind of stepped back. They fed themselves and their lust. And they became more and more darkened as time went on. And invariably what ended up happening is God says these men are so worthless that they deserve to die. Because the people deserved more. Because the people who came to the tent of meeting and wanted to actually meet with God, they deserved more. They deserved priests who wouldn't be scamming on people. They deserved priests whose heart was dedicated to the Lord. They deserved an experience with God that wasn't polluted. And he asks the question, look, if you break a relationship with one another, who's going to intercede for you between God? And only we in the New Testament have that answer. And that's Jesus. 
Jesus is the intercessor for us. When I break a relationship with you and you break a relationship with me, the Lord can fix that. But when I break a relationship with the Father, how do I fix that? I don't have his phone number. I have Jesus. The Bible says that he acts as a mediator between us and God. That the the wrath that is so deserved upon my life, that God deserves to pour out for the wages of sin is death. Jesus stands in between me and that wrath and says, no, this is my son. We're in relationship with one another. We're connected to each other. And wrath just goes right by. It passes over me. And it passes over you. And all of this is in contrast, stark contrast to the beautiful nature of this little boy. And I mean little boy, he's 12 years old when what happens next happens. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. As you press in, guys, as you press in and grow in stature in the Lord, as you grow and press into God, as you take steps forward instead of backward, as you press forward, then what happens is you find favor with God. The Bible's fundamentally clear, men, that if you take a step towards him, he takes a step towards you. If you want to find him, you can find him. He's not hiding from you. We have hidden from him. And the, re- and the important thing for us to remember is that unlike Adam, our job is not to lean back and watch the world commit spiritual suicide around us, but to step forward into the gap and say, I'm here, Lord, use me. Use me to be the spiritual leader of my family. Help me to be humble enough to love my wife and let her lead with me. Help me to be humble enough not to be angry at my kids all the time. Lord, let me pour my life out for my family. That's what we're called to be. And it says that as we press into him, we find favor with him. And as we find favor with him, we find favor with other people. All men. Why? I think, it's, I think it's because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think religion sucks. And I think relationship with Jesus is really important. And I think when you really teach relationship with Jesus and you really live as men, relationship with Jesus. It's attractive. It's attractive to people who are far from God because you're not pummeling them with judgment and condemnation. You're telling them the truth and pulling them in with grace. And who doesn't love that? Who doesn't love the one who comes alongside us and says, hey, I see that you're doing it all wrong, but hey, I'm here to help. And God loves you and he's with you. It's an incredible message, and only the church has the message, and her people. It's astounding. The closer we draw to man, the closer we draw to God, the closer God draws to us. The closer we draw to God, the closer we are with others around us. Skip with me to uh, chapter 3, verse 19. And listen to some of these words. They're amazing. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. So here's what's happening right now. Samuel is asleep and so is Eli. Now remember, um, Hannah dropped Samuel off at three years old. And she took this great miracle when God opened her womb and said, hey, I'm going to give you my son, God, because she made the promise. So Eli has been raising Samuel since he's been three years old. They're in their house. They're asleep. And Samuel comes running into Eli. He goes, what's up? And he goes, "Uh, nothing. 
And he goes, why don't you go back to bed? And he goes, run back to bed. He goes to sleep. And he comes back up. What's going on? You called me? And he's like, nope. But actually now Eli figures it out. Because here's what's happening. Samuel has decided that where he's going to sleep is he's going to sleep right next to the Ark of the Covenant. Which I just think is amazing. Because a little bit later down the road here, someone's going to touch it and die. So you don't want to roll over on that sucker, right? So, so, here, so here's what's happening. He wants to be as close to the presence of God as he possibly can be. He wants to just be as close. I mean, he just wants to sit right outside. I mean, that is where to sit. That's where to sleep. That's where to be. Because where God is, that's where we need to be. And I know that, I know that when, when the closer that you men get to the Lord, the more challenged that you are in the Lord, the more that you're going to rise up. I said it before. I think we're under-challenged. We believe that golf in a nice house is the final verdict. And the final verdict is to be in the presence of glory. Be in the presence of glory, to be in the presence of the Lord. Like young Samuel. He's 12 years old. He's figured this out. I want to be where God is. Because where God is, I'm challenged and I rise to the the challenge. You know, I know this. Yesterday I was driving down I-4. And uh, this car pulls up next to me. It was a $2 million Lamborghini. Right? Which I'm just, I'm, I, you know, which I know it's $2 million because I covet things that I can't have. <laughs> and so it's this $2 million Lamborghini pulls up right next to me and it's awesome. And I'm talking to my wife and my first impulse was, my first impulse was to rev my engine, right? In my Hyundai, <laughs> right? I mean, just I'm in my Hyundai and, and I'm talking to my wife. I go, I'm going to rev the engine to see what happens, you know? Is he going to laugh at me or is he going to take off or what, you know? So I'm just sitting there. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm just going to rev my engine. I didn't because my car has 260 horsepower. That car is 1,400, right? But, but, here's, but here's the thing, here's the thing. When you're next to power, you stand a little taller. I don't know if this is true for women or not because I know nothing about women. But I know this is true for guys, that when you're close to power and when you are close to strength, you rise, something inside you rises up. You want to match it. This is what Samuel's doing. He's like, I want to be near God. I want to be close to him because where he is is where I should be. And so the third time, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. What a posture for us to have. God, I want you to speak. I am your servant. Here I am. I'll see what you want me to see. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll go where you want me to go. Here I am, Lord. I'm your servant. It is the quintessential posture of humility. And this young boy, he's figured it out. And he says this to Eli, or he says this to Samuel. Speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In other words, everyone who hears this is going, I mean, everyone's going to hear this, right? Everyone's going to hear this, what I'm about to do. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And what he had spoken before this was that he was going to bring judgment upon the house. And guys, here was, here was the problem, verse 13. And I declared to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. For the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Verse 
Eli has a conversation with him and says, I hear these things that you're doing right now are wicked and bad. Shouldn't do it anymore. He's just teaching them to be good, moral people. Do the right thing. But he didn't step in and he didn't restrain them. And God says, now, Eli, your sons will die because their wickedness has grown and risen to such a level that it merits it. But Eli's fault is that he was a father who did not restrain the wickedness in his children. I grew up, um, moms, I grew up with a single mom. My dad wasn't around much. Um, And I think there are great detriments to that. But I will say at the same time that God was with our family. And so if you're a mom and you have no dad around to uh, swing the hammer every once in a while, then you just need to know that God is still with you, that he loves you and he loves your sons. And the beautiful thing about my family is that my brother and I ended up building really beautiful and solid families. Uh, And we had zero input from a father to make that happen. I need you to know this too. Having done it now with my boys, there have been times, and my daughter, there have been times where um, it's not enough just to say be moral and be good. You have to intercede for them. You have to fight for their hearts. You have to make sure that they're not walking down a path of wickedness. Now, eventually, they're going to have their own mind and do their own things. And children go their own ways. It says, children obey your parents. It doesn't say adult children. It just says, children obey your parents. But our job as fathers is to make sure the standard is in front of them. I need you to recognize that a father who says, I'm going to let my kid go to church if they want to and not force them to, is abdicating his spiritual responsibility. You need to know that, brother. Because when your friends go, hey, why would you make your kid go to church? Respond with, hey, why would you make your kid go to school? Why? Because you don't want them to be dumb. Right? I mean, that's an important thing to all of us in the room right now. We don't want dumb kids. We want our kids to do well. And behind that is love. And the reason why, as long as my kids will be in, my, in our house, we're going to go to church together. And the good news about this, guys, is this, is that as you lead that over time, all my kids love being at church. They do. It's all they've ever known. You are their family as well. And they love it. We cannot press, we cannot take a step back and expect there to be better results than what we're getting right now. If the results are not what you want, you have to step forward and press in. You have to not pull back You are uniquely desired by God to live up to a standard, not down to one. And we have to fight for the hearts of our families. Because Eli didn't. His his, his kids, his kids perished. So after God pronounces judgment on Eli, Samuel has to go and tell him, verse 17. And Eli said, what is it that he told you? What did God tell you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, uh, do so to you and more if you hide anything from me that he told you. So Samuel, this, basically this 12-year-old kid. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And here's the interesting thing about, remember, Eli's a godly man. He failed as a father, but he was a godly man. And he says, Samuel told him everything, didn't hide anything from him. And here's how Eli responds. It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. And then verse 19, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. See, between verses 18 and 19, 
there is kind of this weird Hebrew juxtaposition. One, at one time, you see the culmination of the failure of Eli as a father, and then on the other, flipping it around, you now see the success of Eli as a father. Remember, Eli's been fathering this Samuel since he was three years old, and while Hophni and Phinehas were great failures on his part, Samuel was a great success because Samuel he poured out his life into, and maybe it was because, you know, Samuel was godly from a very young age, or we don't know what it was, but Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. What does that mean, let none of his words fall to the ground? Samuel was a guy who could speak and move people's hearts. He was a guy who could communicate in such a way that people who are far from God would understand him, and maybe not agree with him, but at least respect him, and people who were God's people would be drawn in closer to God as a result of it. None of his words fell barren. None of his words fell apart. They didn't fall to the ground idle. The result, verse 20, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from New York City to L.A., all of them knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. You see that? That's something that's very easy to miss in the text. As soon as Samuel began to take leadership inside the church, and no longer Hophni and Phinehas, God had been silent during their time as priests. As soon as Samuel stepped forward, God began to speak again. Why? I think it has everything men to do with this. Samuel was a young boy, taught obviously by Eli, to say, here I am, Lord. I'm your servant. Speak. His posture was one of open-heartedness and open-handedness. It wasn't proud and arrogant and self-reliant. It was one that trusted that God is the God of all the ages and has all the mysteries and all the wisdom. And all he needed to do was say, I need more. And God poured it out and he began to speak to him. Guys, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to step forward. It'd be very easy for you to walk out and be, that was too hard on me. I don't think that's what you're going to do. Here's what I think. I think when you're challenged hard, you step up. And my challenge to you is to press in. Where you have failed in the past, press in. If you failed as a father, press in. It's not too late. If you failed as a husband, press in and say, I'm sorry. And the humility, God, I don't know what to do. I need help. And pour, let God pour himself out for you and for your family. As you seek him, he'll be found. Amen? All right, that was mostly women. <laughs> How does that happen? All right, guys are like, I'm still thinking. All right, let's try that one more time. Amen? Amen. Well done, brothers. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for my brothers in the room. I love them with all my heart. I sometimes have the opportunity to preach from experience and sometimes just from theory. And Father, this has been a little bit of both. I'm not getting it right perfectly either. But yet, God, you've called me to step forward and to lead and you've empowered my words and you've strengthened this church. May we raise up a group of men, Lord, from within this church that would call other men to higher standards of life, not better behavior just alone, but to a relationship with Jesus where they thirst and hunger after him. It's in his name we pray, amen.